So we are going to pick up where we left off last week. We've been in the series Godonomics. We're getting there towards the tail end of it. I've just got a, we've got a couple of weeks left. Uh, we've got a guest speaker scheduled for February, which I'll give you more details about him here momentarily. But we've been talking about God's ideas with money. And ultimately, when it comes down to money, we should follow God's plan. God has a plan for everything, right? He has a way in which we do things. Our society today likes to tell us that, you know, I, I know what the Bible says, but, you know, maybe that's not what he meant or anything like that. And we begin to twist things. And what we begin to look at is when it comes to the area of finances, there's a way that God tells us that we should do things. Tithing being one of those. It is something that we should do. It's not something that we have to do. But it's certainly a principle behind it. There's the spirit of mammon, which is the antithesis to the spirit of God. It is the antichrist, if you will. The ideas and plans where it says that if you will follow me, I will give you all the desires of your heart. All of these things are out there. And, and we've talked about that to ad nauseum, to, to, to be realistic, because I want to make sure we understand this is that I'm not one of those guys that's ever going to stand on a platform and try to manipulate and try to get more money out of people. I've been to those churches. I've preached in some of those churches, as a matter of fact. And when I've done it, they said, okay, we want you to do this, and we want you to take up the offering a certain way, and I refuse to do it. I just won't. Because my life is not dictated based off of your giving. It is based off of mine, my obedience to God. So it's not like that if we get more in the offering, it just goes right into my pocket. I trust God. God's going to meet my needs. He's going to meet your needs. He's going to meet the needs of the church. And if we have plans and the finances aren't there, guess what? We can change our plans. Not a big deal. You know, we're getting ready to do some, uh, some work in this room here. We're going to build a new sound booth and all of that kind of stuff. And every time we do it, every year, I backload that into the budget to say, okay, let's get through the first six or eight months and let's just see how things are going because it's not a necessity. We've survived with what we've got, but we want to improve it. We want to make it better. And I know poor, poor Evan back there would like some help, and there's no room for more than one person in that little tiny booth, right? It would get really comfy back there if there was more than one, so... You know, but those are just things that, that we do just practically. And finances are practical. The things of God are really just common sense, one of which is spend less than you make. Not real complicated, but our society says that we should spend everything to meet our needs and find fulfillment. And then last week we got into this subject that it really is a hot-button topic. Some of the ideas that are out there, and you see it on late-night television. You'll see these TV preachers that get up there and telling you, promising you all this, and they give examples of where God blessed somebody with this miracle money, or, or there's an anointing to get out of debt, and if you send $25.46, or I told you last week, they said, send the Isaiah 54, 17 offering of $54.17. Did you know, I'm sure you did, but let me just make sure, that the chapter and verses were not put there by God, but by man as a reference point? like in the year 300, so we had a, you know, otherwise I'd say, okay, we're going to flip over there, go halfway through the book of Isaiah, go down about a third of the page, and we'd all be guessing and not knowing where to go. Those things are used to manipulate people. Now, some people do them innocently. They just don't know any better. They're doing them, they're saying them, they believe them, and they're just following what they've learned. But there are people out there that manipulate, and I showed you some examples of that. They'll talk about sowing a seed, and the seed time and harvest. I've told you guys before, this, the idea of naming your seed is an unbiblical principle that is extremely popular in the church. And it's done by people who are well-intentioned. They truly believe what they're saying because they've been taught this way. But it's also done by people who are out to manipulate. 
And I showed you some examples of that last week. And I told you that I went online and I filled out some stuff, you know, uh, uh, just to, to get this stuff out, just to see what kind of response I would get. Well, guess what? I got one in the mail. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I wanted to show you exactly how it worked. If you remember what we read last week and how it went, um, you're going to see a ton of similarities in this. Okay? Now, this ministry, the guy in the picture here, you can see it. I didn't put it up on the screen, but his name was Leroy Jenkins. He died about a year ago, maybe two years ago, something like that. But the stuff's still going out as his son's taken over. I put in there that I, I need prayer for finances. That's basically all I said. And I get this letter in the mail. And it says, Chris, enclosed in this letter is your anointed, blessed water. Who would have guessed? Right here. It came in the mail. There's a problem. This one had a leak. It's empty. So I missed out. What a bummer. I couldn't believe it. I was so excited. Okay. Here we go. Dear Chris, as soon as you contacted this healing ministry, we started praying for you and about you immediately. Also, when we hear back from you, there is another highly anointed point of contact that must be rushed to you. Here's a question. Why didn't you just throw it in there in the first place? Okay. I'll tell you more about it a little later in this letter. Believe me, Chris, this time is the right time for a miracle in your life. I know positively that the Lord has put this prophetic ministry in your life to help you make it through and over. People often marvel in our crusades the vivid and specific details the Lord has always allowed my dad to see concerning their lives. Some of the things I'll be sharing with you over the next few days through the mail will amaze you. This is exactly why it is so important to me that you respond to this letter quickly, by tomorrow if possible, so that I know for certain that you are moving in strong faith with our, our prayer family who have been trained in intercessory warfare under the leadership of my father and I. Before I go any further, I'd like to pray for you now. Again, there's a whole lot of language, very Christian-y sounding language out here. Now, this guy was proven that he was, you know, was in some financial problems and stuff before he dies. This is why I don't have a problem saying the name because he was one of the guys that got caught. Uh, he's gotten a lot of trouble through the years. Here's what he says, I must stop and pray for you right now, the anointing is so strong on me. Dear Jesus, you know that Chris has gone through a tough season of trials and hurts. It has been a season when some folks have not understood, but you are ready to change that season from sickness to health and from lack to abundance. Lord, I ask you to send Chris the kind of miracle that you gave Brother Brian Little. Now, here's a specific name at a specific place that he's using. You remember how the other letter had done that too? We read that last week. There was a specific name and a specific place. Jesus, you remember how he was called out of the audience there in Florida and prophesied over for a release of a million dollars into his life in just a few short days. Lord, right now, I ask you to do something really big for Chris the same way you worked a million-dollar miracle for Brother Brian, just as you brought Brian out of the dry season of lack and want to put him into a millionaire miracle zone, which I didn't know existed. Just so you know, apparently there's a millionaire miracle zone. We need to figure out how to get there. I ask you to bring Chris out of this dry spell and into a new season of prosperity and plenty. Jesus, let your miracle healing power flow through this little packet of blessed water that I have prayer, prayer anointed and enclosed in this letter. Let blessings be released even now by your precious Holy Spirit in Rockport, Missouri. In advance, we join our faith as prayer partners to agree that it shall come to pass according to your word. Amen. Now, you notice how he said, I must stop for you. The anointing is strong to pray. Who could not associate with that prayer that I've gone through a dry season, I've had a time of lack, and I need a time of abundance, I need healing in my life. There's not a person on this planet that at some point or another could not associate with that, right? We've all gone through hard times, we've had rough goes, sometimes we have times of plenty, sometimes we have times of lack, but just like Paul, I can do all things through Christ, right? All right. 
He says, you must believe when I tell you God desires to change your season. A powerful miracle is coming your way. You must write back quickly. A powerful change is soon coming. I know that God is bearing witness with your spirit. He said, then I can't stop praying, yet the anointing is strong on me. Now, Lord, as I give Chris miracle instructions on how to use this prayer-blessed packet of anointed water in this letter, I ask that self-same Holy Ghost power will flow through this water. I have sent as flow through the water when the sick were healed and delivered in the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5. That actually happened. John chapter 5, the pool of Bethesda. Here he says, are you ready for your miracle faith instructions, Chris? Here are four power keys you must follow to bring out bring you out of your season of trouble and over into your season of blessing you must determine in your heart right now to obey the prophetic instructions and follow these four steps with all the faith that you can muster here they are fill out the season of blessing prayer box at the end of this letter which it's it's on this at the end of this letter and mail it back to me as quickly as you can in fact try and send it tomorrow the quicker we can start praying over your specific prayer needs the better number two it's time to anoint your hands a mighty transfer of anointing will flow as you begin to lay hands upon sickness, IRS debt, unsaved loved ones, claim a new car, financial blessing, those with drug addictions, legal battles, broken relationship, heart's desires. Fill a wash basin with water and put several drops of the miracle water I have sent you into the basin of water. Well, we got a problem. His cup doesn't runneth over. Now dip your hands in the water seven times. Each time you dip your hands in the water, speak these words. Lord, allow my hands to receive wonder-working power. You may even feel led to lay hands in faith upon a loved one who is struggling with depression. Here we go. Number three, Deuteronomy 28 decrees. And all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. What is that in reference? We're not going to go there and read it today. Deuteronomy 28 is talking to the Israelites, getting ready to go into the promised land. And it says, listen... Guys, if you will keep my commandments, which is part of the covenant, when you go into that land, all of these blessings will be poured on you, just as I had promised. That has nothing to do with the situation. The Lord laid it on my heart to challenge you to sow one of two gifts. Here we go. I am going to ask you to sow a seed of either $28, remember Deuteronomy 28, or a double portion seed of $56. Know that it shall return to you good measure, pressed down and shaken together when you hearken unto the voice of the Lord. He used the Bible verse there, didn't he? Remember what that Bible verse was talking about? Love, not money. Let God's voice speak to you today in your giving as you sow your very best prove God offering. Your very best may be more or less than the two gifts and amounts mentioned, but do your very best and let God do the rest. Number four, lastly, I mentioned at the beginning of this letter, there was a second point of contact that I felt led to send you. Under our old gospel tent, we have seen cancers die, crippled people walk, even the, de- God, uh, excuse me, the dead raised. God spoke to my dad to cut up our canvas gospel tent when he had ministered under for years and make prayer cloths out of it. In the prayer box, there is a place for you to request a tent prayer cloth. You may feel led to pray... The, Lay the prayer cloth on some afflicted area of your body or put it in your pillowcase for rest and peace of mind or even carry it in your wallet for prosperity. Make sure to check the box requesting cloth when you write back to me tomorrow, love and prayers. And then there's the order form and then there's stuff talking about the ministry. But what a load of hooey. And, and, and guys, people do this stuff all the time. Now, think about this for a minute. When was the last time you saw an old-fashioned tent meeting? 30 years ago? How many cloths can you cut up out of a tent in 30 years and still have any left? I mean, eventually you've got to run out. But look at how they told you to use it. You take that water, you dip it in the basin, dip your hands in there seven times, say this story. What do we call that? Incantation. Take this prayer cloth, put it in your wallet, all of that kind of stuff. What do we call that? A lucky rabbit's foot. It's the same thing. It's a lucky penny. 
I'm not saying that the, the event that took place when Paul, when they cut up his aprons and was sent, was not legit. I am absolutely saying that. I also think there's a time and a place where that practice can be put in. But this isn't it. Because that prayer cloth, that tent, has nothing to do with anything. It doesn't have the anointing of God. What does? You and I. We're the ones that are gifted and called. So why do people do this? Why do people fall for this? Remember, why are they always on late at night? It's when people are stressing out because they can't sleep because they've got a financial burden. And every one of them requires finances. Every one of them. When does God say that we, we prove him? In our giving of tithes. That's it. He says, test me. Any other time, it does not mention any kind of giving other than what we desire in our heart to do. That's what Paul said. Prepare beforehand. Anytime I've presented a need for you guys or something that we're going to do, I tell you to go home and pray about it. We usually take two or three weeks, and then you come back, and if God does you zero, then you give zero, and you smile about it. But if God puts something on your heart, then you do it. Why? Because I don't need to manipulate. We listen to God. We'll be obedient to Him. So it makes no difference. But here, there's very specific numbers. Now, how many thousands of people would read that and in a desperate think, I don't have much, but I can find $28. So I can send that in, hoping for something to happen. And there will always be examples of somebody that after they did that, something does break through, but that doesn't mean it's of God. It could be, but it doesn't necessarily mean it. You may go to work the next day and it's your time to get a raise. I mean, who knows? So why do people do this, and why do they fall for it? Well, it's out of a, a state of desperateness, but there's two words that I'm going to write up here today and that we're going to look at. The first one is one that we're familiar with, but we don't often use it. It's covet. Covet. Covetousness, covet. We see it all through Scripture, but what does that word even mean? Well, the word covet means to desire or wish for, with eagerness to desire earnestly to obtain or possess in a good sense. We see this in Scripture. We see it used. Exodus 20, verse 17. This is one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. It's one example of it. Covet is often used in a negative connotation. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God, as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and uncleanness, all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting which is not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man, who isn't an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of dis disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. So, covetousness is put up there with all uncleanness and idolaters, which is a major thing. An idolater is one who is intentionally worshiping something other than God. This is not a word that we want to be associated with. In Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1, it says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. Now, when were we raised with Christ? Only when you're born again. It says that we died with him on the cross. We were raised with him at, at the resurrection, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. 
for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, is, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. There we have it again. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. And then it goes on to talk. But you are no longer like that, because now you are the righteousness of God in Christ. So we were that, but we're not anymore, because now we are new creations in Christ when we are born again. So, covet. Not a good word, right? Not necessarily. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it says that we should covet spiritual gifts, especially that you should prophesy. So what is covet? Covet is not the desire to have something. It is this overwhelming desire to have something to find fulfillment in it. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. Don't covet their stuff. Don't covet their servants. Don't covet their house. Don't covet anything. We are desiring something. The only way it can be idolatry is if we are desiring it over the things of God. You guys following me? People talk about in this country how, what is one of the big idols? Football. No, it's not. It can't be an idol unless you are bowing down and worshiping it. And, and I know what you're thinking. Yes, there were some Nebraska fans that have asked Scott Frost into their heart. Yes, that has happened. I have no doubt. But that doesn't mean that all of us are idolaters. It can be a distraction, there's no question. But it's not an idol. So, here's the thing. When we talk about covet, we need to look at where it came from and where, where, where it goes. And I'll, we'll get there in a minute. But another word that we need to know contentment. These are two opposing forces, they are complete opposite. Covet desires something that you don't have, not just the one. It's not like, hey, I'd like to have a new car, that would be nice. That's not covetousness. That's not saying somebody buys a new car. Boy, that's nice. I wouldn't mind having one like that. Covetousness is when we begin to look at something and we're like, I have to have that at any cost. I was recently watching something on Pablo Escobar. Some of you guys remember that. It took place in the 80s and the 90s and stuff like that. And all these guys desired one thing, wealth and power. All of them. And they were willing to do anything to get it and to protect it. That's covetousness. That is not where you are. If somebody says that you are coveting something, you likely are not. We, we throw words around very loosely. So let's begin to look at this. Covet. What is it? Where did it begin? How do we deal with it? Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said? That little, ver that little statement right there, has God indeed said, has since from the very beginning of time been throwing mankind off. We see it today. Did God really say that? You see the arguments about uh, how a person should live and the argument about abortion and all of that. How can you have such opposing views on the same subject claiming that their source is the Bible? It's not possible. They say, well, that's what God said, but that's not what he meant. Has God indeed said you should not eat of every tree of the garden? So what are we talking about? The tree of knowledge and good and evil. Remember, God told them, don't eat of that tree. You can have everything else, but don't eat of that one. Verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you should not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Is that what God said? No, it's not. He said you should not eat of it. He didn't say anything about touching it. 
Now, that commandment was given to Adam, and what I imagine Adam did is like, listen, don't even touch the thing. You ever, you ever done that with your kids? Like, you don't want your kids to punch one another, but their gets the point is like, don't touch one another, don't talk to one another, don't look at one another, don't even breathe the same air. Yeah, y'all know what I'm talking about. Okay. And they do it anyway. For God knows in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You're not going to die. You're going to be just like God. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering. Now that last verse there opens up Pandora's box into a whole other section of study that we're not focused on. We're focused on the one thing, covetousness, the desire to have something so great that at any cost you were willing to sacrifice to get it. We see this here with the serpent, first of all. He tempted Eve and said, did God really say that? And what was her response? What should her response have been? Yeah, he said it. I'm not going to do it. Because I have everything else. I don't even need this. But watch what happened. In her mind, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, you think the other trees weren't good for food? That it was pleasant to the eyes, well, it looks appealing, and that it was desirable to make one wise. She's seeking something that she didn't feel that she had. She took of its fruit and ate, and she gave it to her husband. Now, Adam was not deceived. Adam chose to lay down his life with his wife. You see that in other places. You see, he convinced her and got her questioning what God had said. Did he really say that? And she began to justify it in her mind. Well, the tree does look good for food. I mean, it, it's pleasant to the eyes. And it's going to make me wise. Surely it's going to be okay. You see, she, didn't, she wasn't fully persuaded that what God said was going to happen was going to happen. Because had she realized the consequences in its fullness, she likely wouldn't have fallen for it. But oftentimes, we let the enemy get in there, and we begin to justify our behaviors and actions in our mind to justify what we're doing. So we see three people fall here. We see Adam, we see Eve, but we also see the serpent. Now, I've told you this before, and I'm not going to get into all of this today. I believe right in this moment is where Satan fell. I also believe that this serpent was not a snake with legs, because remember it says on your belly you should go the rest of your days and all that. I don't think that at all. I think this is a title of him because we see that in other places. I don't want to get into all of that, but I'm making that point that I see, think we see all three of them fall right here and right now. And it's all for the exact same reason. The desire to have something so much that they're willing to sacrifice everything to get it. How do I know that? Well, let's look at Isaiah chapter 14. We're going to start in verse 12, and then if you give $14.12 in the offering, to, I'm just kidding. Okay, tough crowd. Here we go. Verse 12, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground. Same language in Genesis 3. You who weaken the nations, for you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. What did he desire to be? Like God. What 
did he tell Eve? That you, you will not die, but your eyes will be open and you will be like God. You see, he was so puffed up in pride. I think these two verses coincide with one another. So puffed up in pride that he thought, man, why is God up here? I should be up here with him. What causes covetousness? Pride. God, I know that's what you said, but let me tell you what you meant. Pride causes this. If you trace every sin that's ever been written about in the Bible, you can always trace it back to pride. I know more than God. I can do this on my own. I don't need a God. In fact, the rejection of God in America and around the world all stems from pride. I don't want God or anybody else to tell me how I should live my life. I don't want any boundaries in life. I will do this my way. People try to get to God in their own methods. The Bible's pretty clear. You are saved by grace and through faith in Christ alone. That is it. You can't do anything good enough to get there because why? Then you could boast that you made it and others did not. And if you try any other way, it is because you are too proud to humble your heart before God and say, I received the work that you did for me. Pride is what causes all of this it causes us to covet it causes us to because we think that we need something more in our lives to find fulfillment because we are not content with the things of God look what Jesus said to the Pharisees in Luke chapter 16 and verse 14 he says now the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard all these things and they derided him and he said to them you are those who justify yourselves before men but God knows your heart for what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God what does he mean by justify themselves they justify everything they do and they use a bible verse to do it it's okay that we do this you need to be this way it's manipulation because they were so proud why did they fight Jesus all the way Everything he did, proving he was the Messiah, they rejected and they tried to cover it up so that nobody would follow them because it meant that they would have to humble their hearts and bow down before him as the Messiah. Thus, their reign of power would be over. And instead of doing that, they would just assume maintain control and kill him on the cross. And that's what they did. They didn't know that that was all part of the plan to begin with. That's the way we are today. That's why talking about money in church is always such a hot-button topic. Because I don't need no preacher telling me what to do with my money. You don't tell me what to do, and I'm not. I'm telling you what God says. You do what you want. But it is pride. Pride comes before the fall. You see, these guys were following the exact same pattern as Satan. We know this because of John chapter 8. It says, he, Jesus talking to the Pharisees here, says, You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not want to stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. For he is a liar and the father of it. You are of your father, the devil. They, they were lovers of money. They coveted what others had. They would live their lives pious before people, letting them see their good works. Jesus is constantly saying, whatever you do, don't be like those guys. Like if you see the Pharisees doing it, just go ahead and do the opposite. 
Right? I mean, I tell people to do the exact same thing when they watch me play golf. You want to learn how to play golf? Come watch me and do the opposite of everything that I do, and you might be good at it. And that's basically what Jesus was getting at. These guys, they, they're, they're giving to the offering, and they're making a big announcement. Hey, look what I did. They're fasting, and they act like, and they dress all pious, and look at me, I'm fasting before God. And God and Jesus is constantly telling them, and say, listen, you do your good works before men, you've received your reward, but you do them in secret, your reward is in heaven. And you should lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. You see, the reason that pride leads to covetousness is because we have no contentment. We can only find contentment in one thing, and that is in God himself we can only find contentment in god we cannot find in anything else but what does mammon promise mammon promises that oh i'll give you all the desires of your heart everything you've ever wanted if you will bow down and worship me same thing with the antichrist it's the same spirit bow down and worship me i'll make you rich i'll make you famous i'll give you all these things people are willing to do crazy things in the name of the almighty dollar you see that all the time. Like, you'll hear about people that get in trouble with something financially. You're like, man, I can't believe they did that. I knew these guys. And it's because there's always a point for somebody that they are willing to sacrifice their morals in the name of finances. I worked for a, uh, many, many years ago, I worked for a company out of real estate license, and, and I, I was in the insurance business as well, but I was leasing part of an office from uh, this real estate company, and they did auctions. And what, this guy would go and do auction. He wasn't a very good auctioneer. He didn't do a lot of them, but he had a deal worked out on they were selling this car. And they said, if it doesn't bring $800, then you don't get your commission on the car, whatever that, I think it was a 15% commission. So what is that? That's like 100 bucks maybe, something like that. And so he's there auctioning. He knows this going in, and there's one guy bidding on the car. And it's at a couple hundred bucks. But this guy doesn't know he's the only guy bidding on the car. So he keeps taking the bid until it exceeded $800, then he sold it to him, and he's telling this story to me, and he's bragging about it. And I'm like, you just sacrificed your morals for $100? Like, that's your price? I completely lost respect for the guy in that moment. I couldn't believe it. You know, I'm not saying this guy was a Christian man, because I don't believe that he was, but, but still, I mean, my goodness, I always used to joke around. It's like, listen, if I'm going to, like, go to jail for something, it's going to have a pretty high dollar value on it. Like, you know, and I was a, it was a joke. And, and, and now I don't dare say that anymore because, you know, the NSA is listening to this. So um, we, we can't chance that. But, but it's amazing because this pride wells up. Well, I deserve that. I need that. That's why these TV preachers like this exist. Because we're never content. Because we haven't found fullness inside of who God says that we are. We are always looking for the next greatest thing to find satisfaction. Now, let's look at this. Luke chapter 12 and verse 13. Then one from the crowd said to me, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. You ever heard that before? You ever been in a family squabble over inheritance left by a loved one? Isn't it amazing? Because you did nothing to earn that money, but somehow you're entitled to it after they die. I've seen family members that uh, would argue over $50 to the point that they no longer talk to one another. So if you've not experienced it, I'm sure you know somebody that has. Now, in this day and age, who got the inheritance? The oldest. That's how it worked. And since I'm the oldest, I think that's still how it should work, but that's neither here nor there. But so he's arguing. It's like, tell him to divide the inheritance with me. And, but he said to him, man, who made me a judge and an arbiter 
over you. And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? Farmers, that's a good question, right? I don't have enough room for this stuff. What am I going to do? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and I'll build greater. And there I will store all my crops and all my goods. Is there a problem with that? Absolutely not. That's not the problem. But look at the next one. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then, who, then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. See, the problem was not the building of the new barns. It's the fulfillment that he found in that. Now I can store all of this up. Now I have everything I've ever desired and want, and now I am satisfied. We've, we've taken the, the gold from God and changed it for the bronze of the world. We're always looking for the next great thing. Now, do not misunderstand me. I am not telling you that we should not seek after things in this world, that they're not here for our benefit. What I'm saying is we should not be controlled by them. We should never be controlled by covetousness and pride. This isn't just a financial thing. This is in every area of life. Every area. When it comes to the things of the church, everybody's like, you know what? Uh, I'm leaving that church because they didn't listen to what I had to say. They didn't do things my way. I think they should have done it like this, and therefore, since they didn't, I don't need to be a part of this church. I'm not talking about here. I was at a church one time. They put in a child check-in system. It was a bigger church. It was in a mall with a lot of people that come in and out because it was in a mall. And so they put in this child check-in system to that way to make sure that the person picking up the kid from the nursery or from the children's church was the person whose name was on the sticker, you know, so some random person didn't just show up. It was in an effort to make sure they were protecting the kids. I don't know about you, pretty good thing to me. And a lady who was visiting the church, had been there a couple of weeks, standing out there having to put in the computer, literally took 12 seconds. And she said, man, I left my last church because of something like this. And I'm just standing like, well, you won't be at this one long. There was a guy, I, I, I'll never forget this, but I used to lead worship in another church, and uh, the guy was deaf. I mean, like, couldn't hear nothing. But the music was always too loud. Now, you explain that one to me. I, I'll never understand that. But he always complains, like, oh, the music's too loud. And he came up to me one time, because I just won't put up with nonsense. And he came up to me, and I was back in the sound booth, and I was messing with something, because the worship time was over and all of that. And he said, man, if we don't turn this music down, I'm going to have to leave the church and find something out. And I looked at him. I said, we're sure going to miss you. I had another lady one time complain about the same thing. I said, you realize that you're a 50-cent pair of earplugs away from being happy? And I'll even throw in the 50 cents. Because what are we complaining about? Hey, I understand if it was too loud, but it wasn't. I had decibel meters to make sure. You know, I can understand that if it got out of control, yeah, they're just fine. We'll, we'll fix that. No different than the thermostat. I've watched churches split over what color carpet they're going to put in, what paint they should use. The church that I was at did a big expansion out there in Hastings right before I got there, and people left because they put three screens up. You know why they put three screens up? It was a big room. 
Not everybody can see the one. Kind of like you guys trying to see through my board here, as a matter of fact. You know, but they left over the Why? Because you're not going to do it my way. You see, pride is what goes into everything. We can only find contentment in God. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'm going to read the entire chapter. Remember who Timothy was. Paul put Timothy as a pastor over the church of Ephesus, a church of about 50,000 people. All right? That's pretty big. Could you imagine the responsibility? You own a business, imagine having 50,000 employees. 50,000 people telling you when your sermons weren't all that great. Sending you emails every week. None of that stuff ever happens. I'm just kidding. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1. Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own master worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. Now let's stop. What is a bondservant? This is not slavery. Bondservant is, I borrow $100 from you, but I can't pay it back, but I agree to work for you for a certain amount of time, and you're going to take care of me in that time. And then after the end of that, when the debt is paid in full, then I can go on my own, and many times they didn't. They chose to stay there because they had it good. Okay, That is a bondservant. So they're to count their masters worthy of all honor. So that way the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. In other words, don't go in there griping about it all the time because we work unto the Lord. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. This is Paul telling Timothy, you need to do this stuff. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which accords uh, with godliness, he is proud. There's that pride thing. Knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reveling, evil suspicion, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, you should withdraw yourself. No, stop there for a minute. All the things I just described are all the things that happen inside of a church. We get to griping, we get to gossiping. Why? Because, oh, did you hear so-and-so? We hide it underneath like, hey, would you be praying for so-and-so? They're having an affair on their husband. Whatever. Pick whatever it is. We, be, we begin to do this because we get this pride if we build ourselves up. I've watched people politic for positions in churches that they will go and undercut somebody. Who brings promotion? God does, right? I've told you guys this before, but you, the number one fear in this world is public speaking. The second is death. Most people would rather die than stand here. Right? Wrap your head around that one. And yet, you'll see people undermining a church and a pastor and the leadership, the elders, the, the deacons, whatever, whatever you want to call them, trying to politic for position to get up there so that they can get their way. We were just discussing this this morning, as a matter of fact, that churches, that, that and it, if they're living a lifestyle that is evil, according to Matthew 18, we go to them with the sin and confront them. If they refuse to repent, we take the elders, and if they still refuse to repent, we say, listen, you cannot worship with us. We give them over that way that they will repent and recognize it. But in some churches, all you have to do is give enough money, and it will all be swept under the rug. Is that the plan of God? No, it's not. Why? God would rather have your heart. He always wanted your heart. He always wants your heart. Nothing will ever change. You see, these people are destitute of the truth. They suppose that godliness is a means of gain, and it absolutely is. Paul talks about this. Like, Listen, I have every right to ask for an offering from you, every right to do it because of what he was doing. But I don't. I work with my hands because that way nobody can accuse me of taking something from you. He did it. That's why he was building tents and all of that. Now, verse 6. 
Godliness with contentment is great gain. Well, there we go. We've got contentment. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith and their greediness, and pierced themselves through, the many, through with many sorrows. The love of money. The greediness. Being rich is not the problem. The desire to be rich for what purpose? It's usually money or power. Notoriety. Jim Wallace, he's a cold case homicide detective. He's a Christian apologist. He goes all over the country speaking. But he said every murder was one of three reasons. It was either sexual, financial, or was power grab. Every single one of them. There was something in it. Those were always the three motives behind it. Every single time. He said, I never saw an example where it was not one of those three. Why? Pride. I deserve something. That's why we have an entitlement mindset in this country. I deserve that, therefore you have enough. Give me what you got. Oh, that's socialism. I'm going to take from you because you got plenty. I just saw something there. There was some billionaire who went out and bought a yacht that has an IMAX theater in it. Okay? I have no idea what that would cost, but it's probably not cheap. And IMAX is pretty big, so thus the yacht must be big. But, but one of our senators was like, you know what? You shouldn't spend money on that. That's why we need to tax these ultra-rich people. But we forget about the part that these people built a company and took the risk in order to do that. Thus, because they provided a service that people wanted, it made them wealthy, and they paid tax on those dollars. And thus, what they're doing with their money is a, none of the politicians' business. Unless it's illegal. Then it would be. You see, we get so caught up in this. What happens is, is we begin to go after God. And I have watched people who, through all the years of ministry that we've been doing this, that they, they, they love God and they, they're just getting by financially. But they're doing okay. They're content in life. But then money comes into their hands. Something changes. And they lose that contentment because they start chasing after these things. Somebody who's had nothing suddenly gets a big influx of cash and inheritance. I mean, win the lottery, whatever the case may be. And they go crazy. And the first thing they think of is, what can I go buy? Because in that, I may find fulfillment. But we can't find fulfillment in the things. We can only find fulfillment in God. Verse 11, but you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith and lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is, is the blessed and only Pontius the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. How many things? All of them to enjoy. There's nothing wrong with that. Let them do good. 
that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that there may, they may lay hold on eternal life. O Timothy, guard what has com- was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. And this is the end of the letter. You see, we're chasing after stuff because of pride. But he goes beyond money. We have to find contentment in God. And how do we do that? It's knowing who we are. The value of any item is what the price was paid for that item. There are times that people will pay way more than what a piece of property is worth because to them it's worth more than what maybe the appraised value is because of what they can do with that land. You see that happen all the time. I've watched for years that somebody will come from one of the coasts like uh, New York or something or or from California where the, the price of homes is like crazy and they'll pay way more than what this house is worth because in their mind, what a steal because it's worth half of what it is in California. You see, it's worth the price of what was paid for. In our case, the value that we have cannot be found in the opinions of others. It is only found in contentment with God. The price that was paid is that Jesus laid down his life. I have watched young ladies for years. They get in this comparison trap where they compare themselves to one another and they will do anything to find fulfillment to get people to like them and notice them. Girls willingly laying down what rightfully belongs to their husband in an effort to make a guy like them and love them and just to find satisfaction in that. And it is all empty and it all leads to destruction because the only place you'll ever find contentment is in God. And that's it. And recognizing who you are in Christ. And knowing that beyond a shadow of a doubt that while this earth around you may be like worthless and may be falling apart, the one thing that I know is that God will provide and I will have food and I will have clothing and I will find myself in Him and I will leave it at that. I don't need the things of this earth to find happiness. I need the things of this earth to promote the gospel. I need the things of this earth, the things that God has provided me to do His work in this land. That's why we're here. And that's why we do it. You see, It's this covetousness and this pride that tells us, man, I don't need to give. You know, other people do that. Everybody should be giving something. I mean, look at the the example of the lady. She had two mites, two pennies, and she gave everything she had because she loved God and believed in the work. And yet some people will never give a dime. I've got family members like that that make a good living, never giving a dime to the church, to any ministry because they're not thankful to God for the provision. They say, you know what? I can do this in my own. And maybe they can for a time. But they're so controlled by the things to fill the desires of their heart that it's never enough. We've got to have something more. We've got to have another house. We've got to have another car, a new car, something else. There's nothing wrong with stuff. It's when the stuff controls you. That is the spirit of mammon. We've talked about time and time again. You see, we have to break the bonds and the chains of what mammon is promised and done because there's only one who can fill those promises and that is God we have to find contentment in him and it starts with knowing who we are in Christ